I'd like to talk about a term that we quite often find in the New Testament. And Paul, Paul alone actually mentions this term in some variation or another 164 times in his letters. So it must be an important term. Um, one of my favorite authors, let me get my, I'm a slide guy, so I got to control my own slides this morning. One of my favorite authors, um, John Stott, he's a Christian author. He says, the commonest description in the scriptures of a follower of Jesus is that he or she is a person in Christ. To be in Christ does not mean to be inside Christ as tools are in a box or our clothes in a closet, but to be organically united to Christ as a limb is in the body or a branch is in the tree. It is a personal relationship with Christ that is the distinctive mark of his authentic followers. So that's a long definition, but in order to really grasp or understand what Paul is talking about when he says that if we are followers of Christ, we are in Christ, we need to break it down a bit and we need to to dig a little bit deeper behind this term. So we know that a Christian is a follower of Christ uh, that's literally what the word Christian means. So being in Christ must have something to do with being a follower of Christ. Jesus says in John thirteen fifteen, For I gave you an example that you should always do as I did to you. So what is Jesus' example that he left for us while he was here on the earth? Jesus, of course, taught with words and he preached to big crowds And he preached to small groups like his disciples. But he also taught through his actions um, what he did, how he approached people and situations. In Matthew 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus came as a servant to mankind. But he didn't come as a servant because it was a nice thing to do. He did it to teach the world that God's way and the world's way are totally different. Every, even the Jewish religion at that time had become a worldly way of doing things. It was more about doing the right things and, and appearing good rather than being good. And it was about hierarchy. And Jesus comes along and he says, you want hierarchy? Okay. The people on the bottom in my kingdom, they're on the top. And the people on the top, they're even more, uh, more insignificant than you think the bottom people are. That's how God sees things. Jesus was trying to teach everyone that the things the world considers important are not that important. God looks at your character. Let's call it your heart. God looks at your heart And though your actions are important, what is behind those actions is the most important thing because that's who we are. God wants to go as deep as possible. He's not interested in people doing the right things if on the inside there's no love, there's no humility, there's no righteousness. And that's what Jesus came to bring. He came not only to teach us what is right, uh, What is his way? He came to make it possible for us to be in his way. If we are in Christ, we we aren't just doing things 
his way, we are his way. If you are in Christ, he has transformed you. We are a new creation if we are his. We are new from the deepest part of ourselves. Not even just our motives, but our very being. Our main goal as followers of Jesus is to be like Christ. And if our main goal is to be like Christ, then we need to figure out who he is and what he has done. Um, So what has he done? Well, let me start by saying our goal is not to be Christ. Believe it or not, I've been hearing I've been hearing that in deconstructed circles of Christian culture. That's actually the first lie in history. In Genesis 3, we read, He, this is the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say you should not eat of the tree in the garden? You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And in saying like God here, The devil is saying they could be the same as God. They could be on the same level as him. And that's not what we're striving for. None of us were born of a virgin. None of us can live sinless lives. And and none of us most likely will die on a cross. Um, Do you know that there are actually people who crucify themselves so that they can better identify with Christ? Jesus used a lot of metaphor in his teachings, um, but he did not mean, I can safely say that he did not mean we need to literally take up an actual cross and follow him. We do, however, need to lay everything down at his feet and surrender to him. But we don't need to cut off our hands or poke out our eyes either. Those were metaphors to get a deeper meaning across. So our goal is to be like Christ, or maybe a better word is to be an imitator of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So how do we do that? How do we imitate Christ? Again, we start by learning who he is and what he's done. So what did he do while he was here on earth? Well, we just talked about how Jesus came as a servant, and he came as a servant to teach us something, right? Teaching and preaching was a huge part of his ministry. So what did Jesus do on earth? Number one, he taught people. Matthew 4 says, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So if we are imitators of Christ, does that mean that we have, to, we have to teach people too? Some of you are teachers. That's your profession. Um, that doesn't seem too overwhelming to you. So others of you may think, oh, I don't have that in me. You're thinking there's no way that I could walk around the country or come up on a stage and do that. Well, don't rule that out. I didn't plan on doing that either. My father was a pastor as well, and as a kid and a teenager, I thought, I will never do that. <laughs> but actually, I'm, not talk- I'm talking about something a, a, a little more simple and a little more natural. Um, Jesus commands us to go and make disciples. And to be honest, the majority of the time, that doesn't happen from a stage. Um, it happens when we share our lives with others. 
It happens when they can see how we as followers of Jesus are living out our lives. When you're able to share what Jesus has done for you with someone because they're in your life and they know that you care about them. Jesus cared about people. He loved people and we're called to love people too. What else did Jesus do? He prayed. We see Jesus spend a lot of time in prayer, especially early in the morning. It was crucial not only to his ministry, but to his existence. He came here because the Father sent him, and every move he made was under the guidance and the counsel of the Father. We can actually read one of Jesus' prayer, uh, prayers in John 17 when he was on the cross. And bear with me, I'm going to read the whole thing here. It says, this is Jesus praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name. Manifested means I have revealed your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep, your, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction. He's talking about Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these, these know you, that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We can learn so much from this prayer. We see the humility and the love of Jesus laid bare. This prayer is also a summary of Jesus' ministry. Verse 4 of this passage says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus knew the Father. We don't know when Jesus became aware of who he was while he was on earth. Was it revealed to him as an adult? Was he, aware, was he always aware of it? Um, we don't know. But we do know that it was his priority to be in fellowship with the Father. To spend time with him, to listen, to share his heart. We see it so clearly, not only in the way that Jesus prayed, like we see in this passage in John 17, but in the way that he lived on earth. We need to know the Father that intimately too. And, and we can do that. It's possible because what Jesus has done, because he died and rose again. Hebrews ten nineteen to 21 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. Right after Jesus tells his disciples that he's about to die, when they're in the upper room and they're sharing Passover together, he says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus has made a way for us to approach the Father in the same way that he did on earth. So number three, what did Jesus do on earth? He glorified the Father. How did he do that? Simply by accomplishing the work that the Father gave him to do. And Jesus has given us work to do. Verse 18 from Jesus' prayer uh, in John 17, which we, we just read, says, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And we know from the Gospels that Jesus has told us to love God and to love others. And he has told us to make disciples. So our goal as followers of Jesus is to imitate him. And when you set out to do anything new, if you're a new believer, you're probably not going to be great at it in the beginning. But you keep trying, you work at it, and eventually you get better at it, right? That's what Christian maturity is. Um, we start off poorly, we start off immaturely, but we get better as we grow in our faith. 
we become more and more mature in our walk with God. And that's what I want to focus on next. We need to stop once in a while and, and assess where we are. How am I doing? What areas do I, have I grown in and what areas do I need to work on? So what does it mean to be in Christ? The first thing I highlighted was, was Jesus' example. And we're going to take a look at growth now. How do we know if we're growing? Well, we need a gauge. We need a gauge. What is a gauge? If you don't know what a gauge is, it's an instrument or a device that tells you the measurement of something. So, for example, if you have a car, then you have a gas gauge on your, on your dashboard. It tells you how much gas you have, right? We just talked about Jesus' life here on earth, what he did, how he lived. That can be one gauge that we use as his followers. Um, how is our prayer life? How are we engaging people around us? Are we trying to make disciples? Those are questions we need to ask ourselves, right? If Jesus is our model. Another gauge for how we're doing as imitators of Christ is the fruit of the Spirit. Matthew 7, starting in verse 15, says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Here Jesus is talking about not only the fruit of the Spirit, which is the good fruit, but he's also talking about the fruit of the flesh. And I'm not going to list the fruits of the flesh. If you're curious, they're listed in Galatians 5. But what I want to focus on here is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How are we doing in these areas? Um, is, are these fruit evident in our lives? What of these do we need to work on? And this isn't meant to be legalism, where we're condemning others or we're condemning ourselves for not being perfect. No, in this life, we will always need improvement, right? We're not perfect. It's not meant to be discouraging either. Just the fact that you're wanting to move forward and you're sitting down to figure out how to do that is a good thing. And we need to ask God to reveal these things to us. We need to ask him, what do I need to work on, God? Show me the things that I need to work on and improve on. And trust me, he will show you. Um, and it can be discouraging when he shows you. But again, just the fact that we can see that there are areas in our lives where we need to be better is evidence of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Um, of course, we need to act on what he's showing us. We can't just agree and say, yeah, I need to work on that and not doing anything. We need to, we need to actually work on what he reveals to us. But one good thing about this pandemic is that it has brought out or revealed some of the thing, these things that we were able to ignore or, or previously hide. Um, I was reading an article the other day, and it said, there are three ways that people have come out of the pandemic. This is in the West. They think they're out of the pandemic now. <laughs> um, they've either come out a hunk, that is, they've spent the whole time exercising and working on their body. They've come out a chunk, 
They've put on the corona pounds, like you see here. Um, or they've come out a drunk. And I found this really interesting. This is how the world deals with crises. Where do we turn when we're stressed or, or feeling hopeless or feeling down? It's, it's exercise, it's alcohol, it's food, you name it. And maybe the pandemic has revealed that for you. Maybe you've been turning to other things instead of turning to God. I want you to know that he's there for you. He says, come to me, all who are tired and weary, and I will give you rest, right? I like how the message puts this verse. It says, are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So we need to be serious about sitting down and reflecting on how we're doing. Because that's how we move forward. That's how we grow. And that's what Christian maturity is. Not only do we grow in discipline, in the fruits of the Spirit, in our desire to be like Christ and to share what Christ has done and is doing in our lives, but our perspective on everything changes as we grow in Him, as we mature. So, for example, we don't see running into someone on the street that we know as a crazy coincidence. Seoul is a big city, and, and sometimes you think, wow, that's such a coincidence that I ran into that person. But if our, if our perspective is changed, we see that as a God-given appointment. Maybe it's simply an opportunity to encourage that person or to pray for them, but the little things in our lives start to take on more meaning or greater significance as we mature and as we grow in Christ. When we're, we're just starting out our journey as a follower of Jesus, we kind of expect big moments, right? A lot of times, a Christian's conversion story is a big moment, or there's a big moment leading up to your conversion. And we often ride a wave of joy and unexplainable highs in the beginning of our walk with God. But as we progress, those big moments often become less and less and life is often a series of little moments. And that's not a bad thing at all. There are definitely seasons of life we go through which are highs and which are lows. But I would say more commonly than not, we go through normalcy, where life is just kind of like this. And let me say that I think it's in those times that we learn how to be faithful. The highs and the lows often draw us to God, but the normalcy of life is when it's easy to forget what God has done, what he's doing, and what he wants to continue to do. And sometimes we even forget that he's there. We see this in Israel's story, don't we? They go through highs, they definitely go through lows. And, but then there's hundreds of years which are so quickly jumped over uh, where nothing seems to happen, where God doesn't seem to be there, and Israel forgets. Let me jump back a bit. We started talking about Christian maturity, and 
our perspectives being shifted, one thing I can say in my journey is that God has taught me and continues to teach me that he is there in those small moments, in the normal normalcy of life. First Kings 19, 11 through 13 says, The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. So what do we do with that? Well, I want to tell you what we do. We keep our eyes open because God is working. He's working when you're washing the dishes for the 10th time today. He's working when you're going to to the store to buy milk and you run into someone. He's working when you're helping your children or your students tie their shoelaces. He's working when you open the door for a stranger. He's working when you allow another car to merge in front of you. I don't like to do that part, but, <laughs> um, but we're not taught to think the way, we're not taught to think like that, are we? We're taught that big moments are important. That's what the world teaches. And we wrongly carry that into our lives as believers. But Jesus is trying to teach us a new way, a different way, his way. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. I like how one translation says this. It says, Do not copy the behavior and customs of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, another translation says that last part uh, a different way. It says, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. I like how the message um, states this. It says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. That's interesting. We've kind of been talking about this in Esther, haven't we? How Mordecai and Esther had basically become Persians, and placing their Persian culture almost above their Jewish identity. That is until Mordecai takes a stand and announces that he's a Jew and refuses to bow down to Haman. God's way is not the world's way. We know this. Jesus taught how his kingdom operated, and his kingdom has a different set of priorities. It's like a mustard seed, seemingly insignificant. It starts off so small and yet becomes so large in the end. And it's like yeast, small particles that don't do much on their own, but when mixed into dough, they make that dough grow 10 times its size. Jesus says, whoever wants to become great 
in the kingdom must be a servant. The kingdom of God operates like no other kingdom or way in this world. I'm not going to cram everything that Jesus teaches about the kingdom into one sermon, um, but my point is that we need to get, we need our way of thinking transformed. We're so ingrained with the messages and the values of this world. In the 20th century, television and advertising hammered those messages into people's brains. And in the 21st century, it's social media and the internet. How do we become transformed? Well, Romans 12 tells us, by the renewing of our minds. That's what Christian maturity is all about. Renewing, refocusing, reorienting our ways to God's ways. God's way of thinking, God's way of doing, God's way of being. I want to look at another passage. 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Participate in the divine nature. What does that mean? If we are in Christ, we are new creations, born again, made new. We are becoming more and more like Christ as we strive to imitate him and to work out what he is working in us. And not only that, he's living in us. The Holy Spirit is one of those great promises that Second Peter talks about for those who believe and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So we are participating in the divine nature by imitating him, by surrendering and allowing him to transform us, and by being brought into fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what Christian maturity looks like, and that's what it looks like to be in Christ, to be under his authority and in his hands. So I mentioned the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the result of being in Christ. What other benefits are promised to those who are in Christ Jesus? We need to look at some scripture, and I'm just going to fly through these really quickly, if my remote allows me. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 6.11, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 30 says, and because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Galatians 3, 26 and 27 says, for in Jesus Christ, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. And we read this earlier. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Last one, Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I want to hone in on a few of these really quick and and spend some more time on these promises and benefits of being Christ. The first benefit 
that I want to highlight is fulfillment. Pastor James preached about this earlier in the year. Um, Whether we know it or not, we are all seeking fulfillment. If you are a follower of Christ, you know that it can only be found in Him. But maybe in your journey, some of you tried looking for it in other experiences or pleasures or relationships, but you ultimately realized what is true, and that is that real fulfillment is only found in God. Because let's be honest, other, other things can make us feel good or make us feel happy, but they don't bring lasting fulfillment. Heroin can make you feel good, but we know that heroin is not a good thing, right? Even a heroin addict knows that heroin is not a good thing. It's an illusion because while you may feel good, your body and your mind are being destroyed. If you've chased pleasure, you realize that it doesn't last. That's where addiction happens. An addict stops at nothing to find satisfaction, even for a short time. But even an addict knows that nothing created brings lasting fulfillment. That's why they keep chasing it. And if we don't know that, if we don't know where to find fulfillment, we will keep chasing new things in the hope that one day we will find it too. Do you realize that when you leave here today, when you walk out of those doors, when you walk into Seoul or get on the bus or the subway, all around you are men and women who are unfulfilled, who are trying to figure out what it means to be human. They're seeking happiness. They're searching for their own identity. They're looking for fulfillment. And we have something to offer that the world is actually longing for. John 6, uh, 25 says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Even here in this passage, we see people, the Jews, looking for physical fulfillment. They want more bread. And yet Jesus points them to their real desire, which is much deeper than physical bread. Their real longing, which is the one only he can satisfy. That deep hunger and thirst inside all of us is for him. And those of us who, know, who are in Christ know this, right? But there's a big difference between knowing it here in our heads and knowing it here in our hearts. Are you living it? Are you fulfilled? If not, go to him. He is the bread of life. Another benefit of being in Christ that I want to highlight is unity. To be in Christ is not only something that has an individual implication, I personally have a relationship with Jesus, but also a collective one. We together have a relationship with Jesus. We are in relation and fellowship with Christ as individuals, and we are in relation and fellowship with Christ as the church. Jesus came not only to show us how to live, to die for our sins, to raise us with him to new life, but he came to build a community called the church, which he is the head of. To be in Christ corporately as the church means that we belong to him as individuals that belong to his body. Let me say that again. To be in Christ as the church 
means that we belong to him as individuals who belong to his body. Back to my, one of my favorite Christian authors again, John Stott. He says, it is not possible to belong to him, to Christ, without simultaneously belonging to the church. In this new community, Jesus has abolished the barriers of race, nationality, class, and sex, which normally divide mankind. Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In the early days of the church, this was revolutionary. Gentiles were looked down on, and slaves and women had no rights. But how can we say that, being, that a benefit of being in Christ is unity when we are split into Catholic and Orthodox and Protestant? And Protestants are split even further into thousands of denominations, right? I want to quote John Stott one more time. He says, Although every follower of Jesus should blush with shame over the fightings and factions that have disgraced the history of the church, yet those who are truly in Christ enjoy a unity with one another which transcends nation and denomination, race and rank, class and culture. Friendship between the friends of Jesus of Nazareth is like any other friendship, is unlike any other friendship, and this ought to be the normal experience within the church, where it is experienced especially across barriers of race, nationality, and language. It is one of the most convincing evidences of the continuing activity of Jesus among men. We are the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5 says. And verse 18 says, All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. To be in Christ means to be in relationship with other believers, to be growing together, encouraging each other, and spurring each other on as Hebrews 10 tells us to do. Verse 25 of Hebrews 10 says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. In, in this passage, the author of Hebrews is calling believers to persevere. In the book of Hebrews, the author sets out everything that Christ has done for us. And now in chapter 10, the author points to the fact that we need each other in order to move forward. If we are in Christ, we have a special bond and a special unity. So let's not waste that by staying home alone and watching TV. Let's use this unity to work together to spread the good news that Jesus is the answer to the longing and the unfulfillment that the world has in their hearts. The last benefit that I want to talk about or that I want to highlight about being in Christ is transformation. I already talked about Christian maturity and how God shifts our perspective 
We read 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New life in Christ leads to new lifestyle, new perspective, and a new way to be human. The world tells us that you need success, power, money, fame to have value. You need to be tough and do whatever it takes to get ahead. You need to have more stuff, more pleasure, more experiences, more, more, more. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the new life that Christ is leading us to. A life that the world doesn't understand. The world is concerned with appearances. As long as you appear to follow rules and regulations, as long as you appear to be doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're good. But Jesus again and again talks about the heart, the pure in heart, or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The world says sex is for fun, enjoyment without commitment. But Jesus says sex is for love, enjoyment within commitment. The world's philosophy is give only as good as you receive. Love those who love you and repay evil for evil. But Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who hate you. Overcome evil with good. The mindset of the world is extremely materialistic, covetous for consumer goods. But Jesus says, don't be anxious about what to eat and drink and where. Instead, seek first God's rule and God's righteousness. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You must choose. Are you going to live the way the world tells you to live or the way that Jesus offers? Can I ask you to do something this morning? Find a friend, find a family member, or someone in your missional family and confess something to them. What do you need to work on? What do you need to give up? What do you need to do more of? And ask them to pray about it with you. Ask them to keep you accountable. Give them permission to call you and ask how you're doing. James 5.16 says, <laughs> this thing's not working, is it? That's okay. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. This is what we're told to do. This is God's word to us. Maybe you're stuck in something because you're not doing this. This is God's word. We need to know it and we need to be living it. What does it mean to be in Christ? This is it. Knowing God not only relationally, but knowing his commands, knowing how to live the right way, his way, and doing it, living it out in community, together. I'm going to pray now, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Let's bow our heads.